0: Welcome to the Birthing Instincts podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational-style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here, so here we go. This, this is, is a Soul, Soul Fire, production. Fire production. Well, the actual truth is here I go. Uh, Bliss is off today, and this is a supplemental Uh, episode of the Birthing Instincts podcast. It's me, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. And I wanted to come on today, even though Bliss is not available, because I've got a whole bunch of things that I think are timely and very important uh, to talk about um, current science and research and information that's out there that I wanted to give my take to because a lot of you listen to me. um, I'm grateful for the trust that you put into me um so i wanted to go through some things because the term misinformation is out there all the time and it's being used by people to belittle people who differ from them and and while i disagree with a lot of the stuff that's out there it's not for me to use the term misinformation because it's become a pejorative uh people that do that people that come up with sensational titles to their articles or uh remember what i've always said is that the Skepticism that I have is not something that should concern you. It's the certainty that other people have that should be the thing that's concerning. So, in that light, I wanted to just go through a couple of things. There's a new article that came out in last month's Grey Journal, the American Journal of OBGYN, by authored by several people, including um, two people that have become infamous uh, in the birthing instincts world, and that's uh, Amos Grunbaum and Frank Chervenak. And they've got another article out. It's actually It is an article. It's not a research paper. It is a research letter. I'm not even sure quite frankly what a research letter is. It was published on November 30th in the Great Journal. Once again, the Great Journal is also a journal that I've said before that Dr. Chervenak is on the ethics board of. Um, I'm not sure about the conflict of interest of publishing articles in the journal that you're on on part of the board of. Um, Maybe you should try to publish your articles in a different journal and have it Peer reviewed by people who are independent. Uh, I can't say that it shouldn't have been published. I can only say that there's a appearance of conflict of interest is not a good thing. And the title of this article is An Immutable Truth. Planned home births in the United States result in avoidable adverse neonatal outcomes. Okay. Um, Whenever you have to put something sensational in the title of your uh, piece. You know, I remember I call this research by press release, essentially uh, to, to get you that, uh, get your attention. So an immutable truth means a truth that is immutable, okay? It means that it's absolute. There's nothing, nothing you can do to ever change it. It's immutable, all right? So these people are saying that planned home birth, United States, results in avoidable adverse neonatal outcomes, all right? What are they comparing it to? Let's go through this a little bit and discuss it. But again, the certainty of these people that constantly put out information that's anti-home birth. And by the way, there's five references to this letter. And of course, three of them are their own papers, which uh, also makes me and should make you a little bit suspicious about their motives um, and their research itself, because they're relying on their own research to put out a new research paper. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Anyway, the objective of this is home births in the United States are associated with increased pa- patient risk profiles, neonatal injury and death. And that's a statement. That's not a question. That's not anything. And the reference they use for that is Grunbaum's own paper um, from 2020 on neonatal mortality in the United States is, relation related to, is related to location of birth rather than type of birth attendant. So um, again, they're making an objective statement that is based on a paper that they themselves put out. Um, The study was a retrospective population-based cohort study that used the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, WONDER, that's W-O-N-D-E-R-L caps, Online Natality Online Database, right? Now I went to this database because I try to do the work so that you don't have to because it's painful sometimes. It's very confusing, very complex, um, with a lots and lots of drop table selection, things that you can do with multiple variables and data sets. Easily confusing, very hard to replicate. There's no way that I could know exactly how they got their data. But it's probably easily manipulated. Um, and again, it's CDC data, and nowhere on there could I find um, specifically the level of skill of the practitioner, I don't know what the, which boxes they checked, that I don't know whether, they, they, said it was for un, they, they said it was for only planned home birth. So there is a box for that, so they may have checked that, but there's no way to determine these things. These are mostly from obviously birth certificate records and birth certificate records are often incomplete, retrospective, and so it's garbage in, sort of garbage out. Now again, I have my bias, I'll be very honest with you, I have worked in the hospital birth world for 28 years. I've been now in my 12th year of home birthing, and I've seen the two worlds, I've seen the difference. There are certain things that should be done in a hospital that are safer, but to say that for low-risk women or even what is traditionally known as high-risk women, to have to be in the hospital simply because that's the way it's always been done, or to compare apples to oranges, it's just bad. It's just it's just wrong. You know, these guys have a they've made a living since I've been doing this home birthing stuff. I have followed them. Well, I haven't followed them because that would be painful, too. But I've I've kept track of all their articles and all the things they put out. They relied on bad papers like the wax paper initially. Um, you can look that up yourself. Uh, so what, what we're doing here is we're we're dealing with with people that are you know, have an ulterior motive as I do. But I'm living the world and supporting home birth. These guys have probably never been to a home birth. they probably never spent a lot of time talking to home birth mothers uh, and why they choose these sorts of things. So, um, you know, if the hospital people have heard me say this, I say this in the documentary, all things being equal. If people could have births in a hospital, it might be safer. But um, all things aren't equal. And not only that. But um, morbidity and mortality is just one endpoint. There's also um, success and patient satisfaction in, in the psycho- psychological well being of the mother. And these things are not considered. The only endpoint that's ever considered in these papers is neonatal death or neonatal morbidity. Obviously, an important thing, but not the only thing. So they looked at a total of 18,954,274 births, of which 153,123 were planned home births. So the question is, how do they know? And they only know because of this CDC wonder program that you can pull up data. But again, there's nothing in here that shows what categories they use. And if you go to this website to look at it, um, it's completely, it's complex. Got multiple, multiple, probably over a hundred different drop-down categories and things you can put in. So you can you can take that for a grain of salt. Anyway, the the numbers they came
1: up with were um, transports,
0: seizures. Um, it's really hard to tell because they have a graph, not a graph, a table that is really hard to interpret, and they're not comparing it to anything but home but home birth. There's no comparison to hospital birth, hospital birth with midwives, hospital birth with doctors. Um, So it's it's actually very incomplete, confusing, but they say that in their conclusion, many midwives do not follow guidelines meant to exclude high-risk patients at planned home birth. And they make three references for that. Of course, two of them are their own references. Now, again, what... Obstetricians sometimes think, academic obstetricians think are high risk. They think that way because they've always been taught that and they never think out of their little box. If you follow me on my on the podcast, you know that we can sometimes do diabetics. We certainly do breaches in twins at home. And sometimes we do them because there are no choices for these people in the hospital. Overwhelmingly, hospitals in the country will not allow a, breech, a woman to have a breech birth vaginally. And when I say allow, that is that terrible word that we hate to use because it's not their right to allow you or not allow you, but there's no training that people aren't skilled to do it. And then people who are mildly hypertensive or diabetic are considered high risk. People who are over 35 are considered high risk. Um, people who are primips, for the sake of Dr. Uh, Grunbaum and Chervenak are considered high risk to have a birth at home. So, um, But it's not high risk to go to a hospital and have a 30 plus percent C-section rate, 40 percent in some places, even higher. That's not high risk. It's not high risk to change the microbiome. It's not high risk to change breastfeeding or the bonding uh, skin to skin. It's not high risk to give vaccines immediately after birth. Um, That stuff is never considered high risk. It's only considered high risk if you go outside of what mainstream ACOG academic medicine decides is high risk. So they say, it is the professional responsibility of all healthcare providers, obstetricians and midwives to present unbiased information. Um, I, I, that's a true statement, all right? Have they ever presented unbiased information is what I would ask them. And is it even possible to exclude your biases from your counseling? So if we're gonna be reasonable, that statement is just, it's, it's um, pablum because it doesn't make any sense. Because of course, we're supposed to present unbiased information, but does anybody actually do it? Focusing the reporting of outcomes on low-risk deliveries underrepresents true adverse outcomes in US home births and provides biased information to patients considering planned home birth. It is an immutable truth that planned home birth in the United States result in avoidable risks of increased adverse neonatal outcomes. I'm not saying that there aren't babies that were born at home that might've done better had they been born in the hospital. Right. And if that's what they're saying, then fine. But I could just say the opposite that there are babies born in the hospital that do worse because they were born in the hospital and they would have done better had they been born at home. So they have an agenda, they put out a paper with an agenda and they give it a title called an immutable truth. Right. So take it for what it's worth. Um, there are a lot of people, midwives and a few doctors like me out there doing good work at home. And the reason we're doing things at home a lot of times is because these things are not allowed in the hospital. The hospital model is the problem, not the home birth model. The bad outcomes in the, and where we are in the world as far as our maternity outcomes and neonatal outcomes in this country is not because 1% of women are having their babies at home. Okay, moving on. So this morning I woke up and I went through my email and I found an email from Evidence-Based Birth, which is an organization I belong to or I subscribe to, I support financially. And um, it was a podcast that came out today. It's their podcast number 204, where they interview um, a doctor named Stacy Dillon, who is an OBGYN, goes by the pronoun she, her, and um they wanna talk about the misinformation out there about
1: COVID. So I, I'm, I'm
0: listening to, I'm, I'm looking at this headline, and I'm going, oh boy. Okay, so whenever I see the term misinformation used, like I said earlier, it's a pejorative that's used to label the other side's information as being false or fraudulent or stupid or whatever. And it's demeaning. Anyway, so I I it's 38 minutes long. I listened, so you don't have to, but I I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to it because it's really good to listen to, but I wanted to go through some of the things that were said um, and maybe give a counter point counterpoint argument here. Okay, so my personal alert reminder is when a so-called expert uses the term misinformation about opinions different from hers and accuses others of having nefarious motives for their differing opinions, which she does, and enthusiastically supports ACOG and the New York Times as reliable sources. Wait, so um, she says, the safety data on the vaccine is overwhelming. She says, misinformation is a coordinated effort to make money. That's what she says. It's the misinformation of telling you not to take a vaccine that's coordinated, and she gives examples of like essential oil makers and vitamin D and vitamin companies that are profiting. They say, don't take the vaccine, take our essential oil. So, you know, I've looked at the Fortune 500 companies. I haven't seen a lot of essential oil makers on the Fortune 500 company, but there are a lot of pharmaceutical companies on there. And she says there's no evidence to support hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, or vitamin D as a therapy. She says that, okay. She also says that the COVID vaccine is free. I think I've said this on the podcast before to Bliss, that if I hear one more person say it's free, um, I'm gonna pull what hair I have left out because it's not free. It's free to you, but your tax dollars are paying for it. And from what I can tell up to this point, Moderna and Pfizer have made in the tens to twenties of billions of dollars from selling this vaccine. And I don't know if that's just the United States, um, it might be worldwide, or it might even be more worldwide. It seemed to me it would probably be more worldwide because you're you're talking millions and millions and millions of doses. Um, so stop saying it's free; it's not free. All right. Um, she says it's the most scrutinized health measure ever, and oh, that may be true. We're we're looking at it retrospectively, and we're scrutinizing it um, because it's the first world pandemic where we've reacted this way but it's certainly not the most researched health measure ever. And certainly there is research on both sides of the argument, which again, when you have confirmation bias, you completely ignore. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that in a a second. She uses the term anti-vaxxer for those that are questioning. Again, like misinformation, anti-vaxxer is a pejorative. Yeah, and by the way, if you look up the definition of anti-vaxxer, which is now in Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it, it includes things that, and I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, and I'll, I'll bring it up in another podcast, but look it up, because the second part of the definition is includes something that most people are, and, and even most researchers are. So basically, everyone's an anti-vaxxer, if you look at the definition. I'm sorry I don't have that for you. I should have looked it up first. Um, and I don't have anybody here to research it because my production company is me (laughs) today, anyway. Um, And then she says to uh, Rebecca Decker at Evidence-Based Birth, she says, because your podcast is called Evidence-Based Birth, you must be presenting good evidence. Well, that's like saying immutable truth must be immutable truth. Right. So not necessarily true. And then she says smallpox is eradicated in the world because of the vaccine. Now, that's misleading. First of all, smallpox, I think, was on the decline when the vaccine was brought into place. And also, yes, the vaccine had some effect on eradicating it. But apparently, from my understanding, the reason that smallpox was eradicated is because it it only existed in humans in nature. There was no animal reservoir. And when there's an animal reservoir like there is for uh, coronaviruses, you will never eradicate it. Right, But she does go on and say that the only way to get rid of the vaccine uh, of the virus is that for everyone to get vaccinated. Okay. I don't I don't. I mean,
1: everyone. Not. Just,
0: you know, everyone, including natural immunity, including babies, every, everyone's going to need to be vaccinated in order to get rid of it. That's a statement that basically says this is never going to end because you cannot get rid of coronaviruses. We just won't get rid of them. She says that uh, mRNA vaccines have a long history of use. And then she even mentioned Ebola. And I, again, I'm not an expert on that, so I don't know. But I don't think uh, the vaccines were the reason that Ebola went away. I don't know that it worked. Um, and I don't think that mRNA vaccines have ever been used in large quantity up until this this past year. So I don't know when she's saying a long history of use, they've been researched for a long time. There's been a lot of problems with them in research. From what I understand, a lot of the laboratory animals they used them on didn't survive. Um, But I don't know of a lot of studies in humans prior to um, this year that had any significant numbers in them. Um, She also says kids should be vaccinated. Then in our country, about 800 have died. Um, I think that's a little high, but even if it's 500, um, that's too many. However, to vaccinate 20 million children because five or 800 have died. And again, no details on those like how many of those kids were perfectly healthy kids that died from uh, coronavirus and how many were kids that had um, uh, significant comorbidities. So no, she gives no details on that. She's just quoting a number. Again, she's very reliant on the CDC. So she she's She has her right to have her information. I would not belittle her for doing that, but I would be very skeptical of someone who seems, again, so certain that she's on the right side of history. Um, She even brought up the example, we vaccinate kids for rubella um, and that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine is obviously safe. And she says we do that to protect pregnant women because getting rubella in pregnancy is terrible. And that's true. I mean, there's a high rate of of miscarriage or a malformation, in women who get rubella when they're when they're pregnant. The problem is, is that that I don't think the source of rubella. Well, first of all, it's not very common anymore. But we have to give six month olds a vaccine for rubella, so pregnant women somewhere else don't catch it. I'm not really sure I understood that. I, I know that she has a. Cog, uh, a um, Cogent uh, thought about that, so she probably has a reason why she said that. Again, it's not very clear to me that vaccinating all children to protect pregnant women is something that we need to do, at least not at a young age, like six months. We could start it maybe when they're five or six or whatever, but um, again, certainty. The ACIP panel, which is the panel that decides on the usage of vaccines or the approval of vaccines, and what age group, she said voted 14 to nothing for kid vaccination. And I think it was actually 17 to nothing with one abstention. But she said it was 14 to nothing. And she said there was no dissent, which was obviously true if there was nothing. Um, but she said there was very clear safety that, that and we talked about this on the podcast before that, that Eric Rubin, I think was the, uh, on the committee who was the editor of the New England Journal and a Harvard uh, physician. Uh, said that we're going to have to give the vaccine to find out what kind of complications will occur. So it, there was not very clear safety. And again, she's giving out information that she probably believes is true. I don't think she has a financial motive. I wouldn't give her that nefarious label. You know, she doesn't believe she's spreading misinformation. I wouldn't call her, I wouldn't label her as somebody who's, um, uh, well, Maleficent is that the right word? Yeah, maleficent. I wouldn't. I wouldn't label that. You know, she might label people who disagree with her as as doing bad, but I think she's she believes what she's saying. She says um, everyone practicing OB trusts
1: ACOG. Again, when you use a term like I "remember," remember we
0: talk about on the podcast. listen so I talk about never say always or, or never. Um, when she says everyone practicing will be trust ACOG, I would tell you that's absolutely not true. And I'm not just talking about myself. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who, you know, cherry pick their ACOG data. And when ACOG says something like reach birth is a reasonable choice, they don't trust ACOG. So let's be real about that. And ACOG is saying we should vaccinate all pregnant women and breastfeeding women and women of reproductive age. And they said it months ago, long before the, any of these papers that are coming out that may support or not support the use of the vaccine in pregnant women. They just said it before there was any research at all. She says the CDC is a good source of information. Uh, I would dispute that. The CDC has been wrong many times. They've changed their tune. They often change definitions of things to fit their model. Uh, I don't think that's really what a good source of information would necessarily do. And she said pregnant women should get your booster uh, because ACOG wants you to and because they want to keep you healthy. So I'll just leave that sentence as that. That's the expert that, that Rebecca Decker has on her, her um, podcast on evidence-based birth. Now, on, uh, on Rebecca's part, she says, quote, the data is so reassuring, unquote, and she's completely sycophantic with her guests. She never challenged her guests on any of the things I just said about what the guests said. Not one challenge came in. They were They were in lockstep the entire interview. So clearly, you know, this is kind of like somebody interviewing a politician who's on that politician's side and ask them questions about, you know, what kind of ice cream they like or, you know, how did you pick these couches as opposed to foreign policy or border policy or something where it's going to be challenging? There were no challenging questions whatsoever. She actually mocked someone who sent her a harsh message. And it was a harsh message, I have to say that. Um, telling her she should repent for what she's saying about coronavirus. But she actually mocked her for disagreeing with her. She she says, and I know that, I don't think she was being lighthearted, but maybe it was just off the cuff remark. But she says, fear of needles is a reason people want to believe this vaccine isn't good. I don't think that that's the case. Nobody likes needles. All right. Nobody. Some people aren't bothered by it, and there are phobic people that don't, can't handle a needle anywhere near them, but that is not a large population, and that is not the people that are spreading so-called misinformation about questions about the vaccine. And then she also said that there were no treatments available for COVID in early 2020. And that's just not true. There were no treatments that were approved by the CDC or the NIH or the FDA, but there were lots of treatments out there and there were worldwide things. There was a clinical protocol with hydroxychloroquine. There were studies in other countries using ivermectin, vitamin D, quercetin, zinc. There were lots of things out there long before they came out with uh, monoclonal antibodies or whatever. And by the way, I just have to say that I bought um, Robert Kennedy's book on uh, the real Anthony Fauci and whether or not you want to read it or not, I. I just think that it's really important if you read the first chapter. I don't know how you could not be skeptical of anything that comes out of this person's mouth, so. And they explain sort of why and how it is that alternative treatments that aren't financially beneficial to the NIH, to Dr. Fauci or to Dr. Fauci's friends in the pharmaceutical industry are always suppressed. He did the same thing in the AIDS epidemic. If you ever saw the Dallas Buyers Club, That movie is about it. And the bad guy in the Dallas Fire stuff is Anthony Fauci. Um, They changed the name, but that's who who they're talking about. And they made they made medicines that you had to get them illegally through Mexico or other places because they wouldn't let you try them uh, here. And that was Fauci's policy. Anyway, evidence based birth has been a source I've relied on. I refer people to it all the time. I'm going to be a little bit more hesitant now, a little bit more careful about just bl- bl- uh, uh, blindly or blanketly referring people to them. Uh, but for a lot of the stuff, they're they're good. I just disagree with pretty much everything that was in that interview, and I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that they're not. It's not the only right answer. So, all right. And again, one of the things I said last uh, podcast recently is I said it's a, the use the test of time go back through the print or audio record and see if what was said was still valid. So, you know, I don't know. um, I don't have a time to go through Stacy Dillon's Instagram account and see if she's posted stuff a year ago or whatever, that, that is now not true, but it might be interesting to find out. And if you find that that that's true with her or evidence-based birth or anybody else, and it happens repeatedly, everybody can get things wrong once or twice. It's fine. But if they get it repeatedly wrong and they refuse to acknowledge it, then why would you believe them on anything? Okay, speaking of not believing somebody on anything, uh, I wanna move on uh, to some quick news articles. The AMA, by the way, this is from June. I don't know why I didn't see it till recently. It's a press release from June. So it's six months old already, five months old. Uh, The AMA survey showed over 96% of doctors were fully vaccinated against COVID. Um, That's a press release in June of 2021. Now here, Again, one of my mottos is science by press release. So this AMA releases this information, Associated Press, New York Times, everybody runs with this that 96% of doctors are vaccinated against COVID. But then you look at the the information in there and it says, the AMA today released a new survey among practicing physicians that shows more than 96% of of surveyed US physicians have been fully vaccinated for COVID-19, okay. No details about the survey. How many people were surveyed? Are all the people surveyed academicians Are all the people surveyed AMA members? Because remember, only 14 to 17 percent of physicians in the United States belong to the AMA. So they put out a press release that says 96 percent of. Physicians are are vaccinated based on a survey with no details on the survey. And that gets picked up and that gets repeated. So people think, well, if doctors are doing it, it must be safe. The survey was conducted in June. Practicing physicians across the country are leading by example with an amazing uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine, says AMA President Susan R. Bailey. Quote, physicians and clinicians are uniquely positioned to listen to and validate patient concerns. And one of the most powerful anecdotes a physician can offer is that they themselves have been vaccinated. You can take it from your doctor. The COVID nineteen vaccines are safe and effective. Oh There's that term again, just like misinformation, uh, just like anti-vaxxer. The term "safe and effective" again is another garbage term. It's garbage. There it depends how you define safety, and it depends how you find you define efficacy. Right? But there is so much evidence coming out in the world that is being ignored by evidence-based birth and other people that they aren't necessarily safe. Maybe their safety profile might be acceptable to some people, but not to others, right? But we're going to mandate that everyone take this thing because it's safe and effective. And then it's effective only for about six months at lessening the severity of illness. And then you need a booster shot. And if the booster shot wears out, you need another booster shot. And you can still catch COVID, even though it might be milder. Although that's, I got some evidence coming up on on that, and um, you can still spread COVID, but you get a vaccine passport. But people who are natural immunity who aren't vaccinated don't, and they can't spread it, and they don't generally catch it again. Very 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 small percentage of people will get COVID twice if they've had a, a significant case of COVID. Okay, so let's skip that. Um, so there's a there's an Israeli study. That came out just recently. This is a new one. Um, and the title here, again, it, they use the word huge. So it's again, it's a little bit hyper, hyperbolic. And I think that headlines tend to do this. And I'm not justifying it on either side of the argument. You should be honest with your headlines and not try to skew your audience by the words you use in your headlines. But they are designed to grab your interest and make you click on it. So a huge Israeli study shows natural COVID immunity is far superior to the vaccine-generated kind. During the summer COVID wave, more than 140,000 Israelis who had been vaccinated but not received a booster shot became infected with COVID. Put another way, in just two months, about one out of every 20 vaccinated Israelis became infected with SARS-CoV-2. Natural immunity lasts much longer, the study shows. In fact, people who had already had COVID once had better protection from the virus more than a year later than people who had been vaccinated only three months before. The study also showed that giving people who had natural immunity a vaccine did little to lower rates of infection for them. So again, if you've had the um, COVID infection, the CDC and, the, and Fauci are saying you need to get your vaccine anyway. Rachel Walensky, I'm sure Dr. DeWin says this as well. Uh, I know Dr. Leanna Wen on TV basically says that you need 65 vaccines. No, I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating, okay? But you have to get vaccinated, I mean, you have to get vaccinated even if you've recovered from COVID. But the study showed that there was very little benefit for that. And um, finally, the study offered a disturbing signal that vaccination may ultimately interfere with the development of lasting immunity in people who are infected after being vaccinated. So you get your COVID vaccine, you get your second COVID vaccine, you catch COVID, your body's immune response may not be as strong as if you just caught COVID before you got vaccinated. And so you won't have the natural immune protection as well. Now, again, this is this is Israel is one of these countries that, you know, there's like, I don't know, six million people or whatever it is in Israel, and 95-98% of them have been vaccinated, all with the Pfizer vaccine. So it's a great petri dish. So all these findings come out of a database of COVID infections among almost six million Israelis at the peak of the fourth COVID wave in Israel, fourth fourth COVID wave in a country that's completely vaccinated. um, The researchers found that the highest rates of infection by far came in people who had been vaccinated at least six months before. Uh, They had nearly a 3% chance of being infected per month. I'm not sure how to interpret that, but I just wanted to put that out there. There were also set... Let's see... These, those people were four times as likely to be infected as newly vaccinated people, the people that were vaccinated at least six months before. They were also seven times as likely to be infected as people who had natural immunity from an infection six to eight months before and three times as likely to be infected as those who had natural immunity from infection more than a year before. So people that had COVID more than a year ago were still three times less likely to get infected in the new wave of COVID than people who had been vaccinated. A single vaccination dose in people with natural immunity temporarily produced strong protection. But after six months, the advantage had faded to within the margin of statistical error. Nor did vaccination appear to stop severe disease, as we've been told over and over again. Say, so, well, if you catch it, it'll be less severe. Now, that may be true. But in this study, it didn't seem to. Nearly every case of severe disease in the database, about 1,400 of the 1,600 cases, came in vaccinated but unboosted people. Boosters did appear to reduce severe infection significantly. But there's no data on the boosters after two months because the study was stopped at that point. So you get your booster, you might be protected for at least two months, but we don't know if it's three months, six months, or forever. But likely, based on what we're seeing, it's going to be less than six months, and you're going to need another booster. And then another booster. And then another booster. Because when is it going to end? It's only going to end, according to these people, like Stacey DeWin, when everyone in the world has been vaccinated. And then do you really think it's going to end? Because, as you said, coronavirus isn't like smallpox. It has animal reservoirs. It will make its appearance. It will mutate and make its appearance. It's going to be with us like the flu, like the cold. Um, It's going to keep being around. Okay, so that's that study. ACOG sends out, I'm a, obviously, I'm still an associate of ACOG. <clears throat> I'm no longer a fellow, by the way. I've chosen not to uh, continue my board certification process because it serves no purpose for me. So um, I can't be a fellow of ACOG anymore, but I can be associate of ACOG. I can still pay dues. I get a discount, however, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> but I still get their emails and I still have access to all their data, which I, you know, there's some very good data on ACOG. You know, I'm not somebody who's blanket blanket in condemning ACOG or the CDC or anybody else, like some people will do on the other side. They'll blanketly condemn anybody who is anti, you know, is skeptical about this vaccine or raises questions or supports alternative treatments like hydroxychloroquine. So ACOG says, uh, and, and you know, I I find this abhorrent, but. As California continues its effort to vaccinate all eligible residents against COVID-19, the state is offering support for community-based physicians to help our state reach its vaccination goal. The CalVax grant program is funded by the California Department of Public Health and administered by Physicians for a Healthy California. It offers grant funding, one-on-one MyCVax support, and vaccine administrative resources for physician practices. Individual practices may receive up to fifty-five thousand dollars to support vaccination efforts, and to be eligible, practices must complete section A of the Cal of My CalVax application process. All right, so I'll pause for a second. You take that in. A private doctor's office or group of doctors is eligible to receive fifty-five thousand dollars of Federally funded, designated to the state, taxpayer dollars because the federal government doesn't make any money. Well, it could print it. It could be printed dollars, which makes, of course, your bank account worth less. That's how part of inflation works. Another topic for another day. Um, But um, have you ever heard of such a thing as giving patient uh, payments to doctors? To support an agenda of getting vaccinated, I mean, what's what? I mean, what's next? Giving pizza to children? Oh wait, they've done that. You know, giving you a discount um, on on uh, donuts or free this or free tickets to Laker games or whatever. Oh yeah, they've done that too. So this, so basically, we're bribing or coercer- coercing. 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 That's not a word coercing the citizenry and medical professionals to give a product. Now, if this product is really good, does it sound like it would be necessary? Has this ever been done before? I, I, maybe it has. If it has, please message me and let me know if you can think of something where they've actually paid thousands of dollars to physicians to, <laughs> to, to, to skew their informed consent. I guess is what they're saying. Um, I don't know, I, I, I really don't know. So, you know, we right now we're giving, I mean, I, we've seen it in other things. They, they're proposing giving uh, tax credits of lots of money, like over $10,000, $15,000 tax credit to, uh, for if you purchase an electric car, right? However, the electric car's average price of the car is $50,000. So only wealthier people or upper middle-class people can really afford an electric car. So we're giving tax credits to wealthy people, (laughs) okay? By the way, what happens when the power goes out? It's another good question for that. It's like a used car salesman giving, oh, 0% APR financing if you buy a car now. I mean, $55,000 if you just counsel people the way we want you to because we want people to take the vaccine. I don't know. And that's ACOG. So that trustworthy organization that Southern, some physicians think all doctors believe in is doing that. Um, I'll skip that. I'll move on to uh, UCLA, another one of my favorites. UCLA and um, you know they're all all in pro COVID uh, vaccine, and they often put out, and I've said before on the podcast, put out interviews that seem like news or seem like interviews, but are really propaganda pieces. And here's another one. It's a Q&A with Dr. Shang-Ying Yang of UCLA. Um, I couldn't find out what kind of doctor he is. I didn't see a bio on the article, but let me go through this real quickly. On December 1st, Omicron's presence in California was confirmed by the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention. It has since been identified in Los Angeles County. All right. I would like to repeat at the time of this recording, which is December 15th, 2021, uh, there have been zero U.S. deaths from uh, Omicron. And I think one death worldwide from Omicron. Right? But it's a big deal because we make it a big deal because we can use it to frighten people and to get more of our agenda pushed through. That's me talking. That's not UCLA talking. UCLA would never say something like that. First question, how is Omicron variant different from the Delta variant than others? Well, the answer from Dr. Yang is it has a lot of mutations in its genome. The Delta variant has fewer than 20 mutations. The Omicron variant has 30. It's almost double. Okay, I'm not sure what that means. The more changes there are in the spike protein gene, the more likely the vaccines and the therapeutic drugs could lose their efficacy. It's not good news, especially for those who have not been vaccinated. Let me read that sentence again, okay? The more changes there are in the spike protein gene, which the Omicron variant apparently has, the more likely vaccines and the therapeutic drugs could lose their efficacy. It's not good news, especially for those who have not been vaccinated. Wait a minute, okay. So I get what he's saying. He says that the therapeutic drugs could lose their efficacy. So people who could catch COVID who aren't vaccinated, um,
1: might it might be less effective. But he
0: also says the vaccines could lose their efficacy. So he's essentially saying that get vaccinated, but the vaccine, because this Omicron has lots of different mutations, might affect the efficacy of the vaccine. And that's bad news for the people who have not been vaccinated. No, it's bad news for everyone, if that's really true. And if this is as virulent as people want you to believe it is, which apparently it isn't. Again. This is at the time of December 15th, 2021. And then he said it has the potential to become another big variant. All right? Again, these are things that once you see them, you can't unsee them. It has. To, what's the point of saying that? Well, it, if it has the potential to become another big variant, then it has the potential to not become another big variant.
1: So everything has the potential to become a problem. You get in your
0: car today, you have the potential of getting an accident, right? I mean, again, but you have the potential of not getting an accident, which is more likely. So these words don't mean anything. Please, please, please recognize this sort of thing. If there's one thing that I'd like my podcast to do, it's to enlighten people on how to interpret information. And and when they see these sorts of words or these sorts of phrases, they'll never be able to unrecognize them again, right? Then he goes on to say, Uh, about whether it's more contagious than Delta, he goes on to say, well, there's not enough data or cases reported to know yet. What? Okay. (laughs) To put a stop to other variants emerging, people have to get vaccinated and reduce transmission, which is what enables the mutations. Let's see, wait a second. So let me read that again. People have to get vaccinated and reduce transmission, which is what enables the mutations.
1: So if you get vaccinated, it enables the mutations. I don't. He doesn't say that the unvaccinated are enabling
0: the mutations. He's basically saying what I believe. Okay. So that's what he said. I put a big what by that because I wanted to make sure that I'm reading it to
1: you correctly. So people
0: have to get vaccinated to reduce transmission. Because oh, transmission enables mutations but the vaccine doesn't reduce transmissions. Oh, well, my head is exploding. Next question. Do our current vaccines protect against it? Including the booster. It, I guess, is Omicron. Most likely, yes, which means also possibly no. All right. Immune response triggers the creation of antibodies to neutralize the virus. But changes to the virus can impact the effectiveness of the antibodies, which means that the vaccinated can still get COVID-19 and spread it. Those who are vaccinated will likely not get sick if they contract the variant, right? But didn't he just say a a second ago that I thought there wasn't
1: enough data? Right, again, everything about this
0: interview is to lead you toward getting vaccinated yet, if I read it correctly, it's very confusing that the vaccine really isn't going to be very helpful. Okay, then a big question comes, should we prepare for cities and states to shut down again? I think it is highly unlikely, being that people are so tired of being locked down. Woohoo! Well, good for him. But, he says, also, we have other preventative measures. We can have people get vaccinated and get the boosters, and we can have people wear masks. We know those measures work beautifully.
1: Another pregnant pause on the Birthing Instincts podcast.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. But we get vaccinated and get the boosters because they work beautifully, all right? And where masks work beautifully, which actually there's no data anywhere except rare data on N95s that say that the crappy little masks we're walking around with do anything for this sort of virus, especially in well people. Sick people, masking or staying home is the thing to do. Well people wearing a mask is completely stupid. I'm sorry about my certainty there. Maybe I should have a little skepticism, but I'm pretty certain about that. Plus, we're not even considering the damage that wearing masks are doing to our children. The cognitive abilities of our children are down. They've done a study now looking at the last two years of mask wearing. And of course, you know, um, among the cognitive decline is is the social interaction, the social problems that are occurring and will occur. And no one really knows what will happen 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. And the fact these kids are growing up never seeing faces or rarely seeing um, the faces of their teachers. I I saw a story once where a a kid saw his teacher without a mask and didn't recognize the teacher until the teacher put the mask on and then recognized the teacher. Now that could be a makeup story, but it serves my purpose. Why are countries from Australia to Israel closing their borders so quickly? And here's some refreshing honesty. It's more political than anything. Good for you, Dr. Yang, thank you. The problem is once you've identified the virus, it's already too late. It's already widespread. So closing borders is not effective. Yay, yay, yay. But they're gonna do it anyway. Because what do we always say about these policies? It's not about health. It's never been about health. Not even two weeks to slow the curve or flatten the curve. Was never about health. They knew what they were doing from day one. Can we expect to have COVID variants from now on? He answers, yes until we are able to get the entire human population vaccinated. But where does that come from? That's two people now who've said that. It's not just about the United States. We're talking about the entire human population. Okay, so that's 7 billion people with boosters every six months. First of all, in my opinion, that's impossible to achieve. So basically saying that we will have COVID forever. And what is the profit margin for big pharma on that? with a free vaccine. <laughs> Sorry, oh God. It's really hard not to be snarky. It just really is. And especially when I don't have bliss to, uh, to keep me even keeled. What is the most sensible thing for people to do at this point? We should continue doing what we've been doing. We should continue to wear masks and get vaccinated. Aye, aye, aye. Those who have already been vaccinated should make sure they get their booster. Make sure your kids are vaccinated and continue to protect our loved ones and ourselves. We can't just let our guard down at this point. And then I forgot to say at the end of this that UCLA is is, um, uh, a place where you can get vaccinated and they actively advertise even on television to have you come to UCLA to get your vaccine. So there's no conflict of interest here. There's no confirmation bias here. Sarcasm from me, (laughs) sorry, okay. I think I'm going to, well, you know what, um, let me give two pieces of information about the effect on uh, COVID vaccination in pregnancy. One is a letter to the New England Journal um, about a Norwegian study. And, and in all fairness, the Norwegian study was a case-controlled, case-controlled study uh, looking on first trimester pregnancies, COVID-19 vaccination, vaccination background characteristics and underlying health conditions. And to make a long story short, they basically said their study found no evidence of an increased risk for early pregnancy loss after COVID-19 vaccination. So the what I can determine from their graph was that the miscarriage rate was about 30% in both groups. All right, now 30% seems high based on the, some of the other studies that came out with the 12% risk, but 30% is what I've been quoting most, most of my entire career. Um, about one-third of all conceptions, human conceptions will miscarry early on in the first trimester. That is a normal human condition. So the fact is that this Norwegian study did not show an increase with first trimester vaccine, or I guess for for people who were vaccinated just prior to them knowing that they were pregnant. So that's good news, right? And that's reasonable to have that news. However, there's a a study out out of New Zealand which says the opposite. So this is why when somebody comes out and says, like ACOG or people that support ACOG and say that this is perfectly safe in pregnancy and it's safe and effective and all this stuff. They're just cherry picking their data. And it's hard to know. And obviously as a physician, you may have to pick which side you're on when you're counseling, but you don't really have to. You could also say, listen, it's really unknown and I can't give you the risk benefit, but you, Mary, you're very healthy. You've got no comorbidities. You're 25 years old. Um, here's the pros of getting vaccinated. Here's the cons of getting vaccinated. You know, you can't, and and I do agree with Dr. DeWin said you you can't tell people to go to the internet and do their own research. I mean, we do say that all the time. The problem is I can't and she can't. And we both agree that we can't do our own research. There's just too much. There's too much data out there. And it's hard to know data now, whether it's reliable or unreliable, because the Lancet, New England Journal were both um. Caught putting out false information, had to retract articles. Um, so, and we know that uh, that our friends Chervenak and Grunbaum only have one train of thought. So, can you trust all the science that's out there? Of course not. You can't. And can you trust the people that are bringing the science? No. You have to find trusted sources. And as I said before, I don't trust mainstream media. They're too with big pharma. The big pharma sponsors most of their programming. You can't trust them to give you honest answers. So you have to go to independent media and you have to find the reporters or the journalists that you like. And there's a lot of good ones on Substack. And again, the people that I listen to most are Cheryl Atkinson, Glenn Greenwald, uh, Alex Berenson, um, Barry Weiss, Uh, these people, I don't find that they have an agenda. They don't work for anybody other than themselves. So, And there's a lot of other good ones out there I'm leaving out, you know, John Solomon, there's a lot of there's a lot of good writers out there. But anybody that's related to uh, journals now or big academia, which is all in with the NIH and they get their funding from the NIH. And so they're not going to want to publish a paper that says the vaccine sucks. Um, Vaccines causing myocarditis, the vaccine's causing problems. Vaccine is unnecessary in five year olds and eventually we're going to go down to six month olds. Believe me, it'll be on the schedule. Um, That's a whole other topic again. What are we gonna do about all that? Where can we go left in the world? There aren't a lot of places left in the world. Anyway, I'm getting off track. So this one out of New Zealand said, um, the use of the mRNA vaccine in pregnancy is now generally considered safe for protection against COVID-19 in countries such as New Zealand, USA, and Australia. However, the influential CDC sponsored article by Shimabukuro in 2021, I think that was a New England Journal article, but I'm not sure. Used to support this idea on closer inspection provides little assurance, particularly for those exposed in early pregnancy. In this article, we draw attention to these errors and recalculate the risk of this outcome based on the cohort that was exposed to the vaccine before 20 weeks gestation. Our reanalysis indicates a cumulative incidence of spontaneous abortion, seven to eight times higher than the original author's results. Now, Dr. DeWin in the evidence-based birth podcast She just calls this junk. She just says this is junk. But this was published in November of 2021, so it's only a month old. And we conclude that the claims made using these data on the safety of exposure of women in early pregnancy to mRNA-based vaccines to prevent COVID-19 are unwarranted and recommend that those policy decisions be revisited. So the claims of safety is what they're talking about. So you have the article from Norway, and you have the article from New Zealand, and you can use your own judgment. Okay, the last thing I wanna do is read a letter that I got today from a woman. I don't think she would mind me using her name, but I'm not going to just in case. And she writes, this was just yesterday. She writes, um, a midwife in San Francisco referred me to you. I'm a healthcare provider. All throughout this pandemic, I was there helping my clients, or excuse me, our clients, but I refuse to get vaccinated myself for medical issues. Now my employer are forcing me to get the COVID vax or else my termination date is January 4th. I am three months pregnant. Here's the part that's shocking to me, just shocking. My employer is accepting exemption letters due to medical or pregnancy, but my Kaiser doctor, primary care physician slash OBGYN are not willing to execute the reasonable accommodation form. They are insisting I need the vaccine. I'm deeply saddened with this. I'm not comfortable with it. since there's not so much long-term data for pregnancy and babies that has been done. I will be subjected to bi-weekly testing, which I have been doing for a while now if I get uh, the reasonable accommodation form filled out. Please, doctor, I hope you can help me. Um, And I wrote back, Thank you for writing, the doctors who won't help you are fearful or evil or both. What they are doing violates all tenets of medical ethics. Or I should say, what they are not doing violates all tenets of medical ethics. I can get, and again, this is probably a Kaiser policy. So again, it may not be the individual doctors. The doctors may not be able to do it for fear, of course, of them losing their jobs or not getting promoted or whatever else. You know, I've seen this in these big institutions. Kaiser happens to be the big one here in Southern California, but you guys have them all over the world, all over the the rest of the country. And the same thing goes on, where doctors are being told what they can prescribe, how much time they have to see a client. That VBAC is not allowed. Breach is not allowed. That you're not allowed to, um, you know, skew your counseling this way or whatever. You're not allowed to do these sorts of things. Again, so it's really unethical to to do or not do. Um, true informed consent or even support a woman by writing her a letter saying that she's pregnant. Not telling them that you don't want her to have the vaccine, just say that she's pregnant because all, all her employer wants is a letter saying she's pregnant and that she, she chooses not to have the vaccine. I wrote, I can likely give you a letter or complete the form but cannot promise these malevolent companies will honor them. I would need to review your history by having you sign up for a Zoom consultation. So I did send her my consultation service. This is not a solicitation for that. I do charge for these sorts of things. Again, I'm not trying to promote myself here. I I, I can't do it for free. I have to make a a record. I can't just write letters blindly for people I've never met or don't know. I mean, there are physicians who do that. I'm not going to do that, but uh, I'm going to try to follow the pattern. But I'm certainly going to do like what America's Frontline Doctors does to have a consultation service and be able to give you medical information, but through telemedicine, which is acceptable. And I said, that I hope this is helpful for you. So in summary, um, thanks for spending this hour with me. Uh, I, it's amazing what I can do in an hour and just talk away all by myself. Um, and that you st- you stuck with me through all this. Uh, I felt that this was Im- important information to get out. And with Bliss not available this week, I just wanted to put it out there because Podcasts are delayed. This won't come out till January, unless I can stick it in and ask, you know, maybe as a producer, I'll have the producer put it in as an extra supplemental podcast. Uh, but it's really important to look at the difference between the way I'm looking at this information, and the way other doctors are looking at this information, the way that I'm skeptical and I'm open to people making their own decisions versus the way they're certain and they belittle people who have different opinions from them. Um, maybe I was a little bit mocking of Dr. Yang sometimes. I wasn't really mocking of him personally, but uh, it, the the information that he gives and also that Dr. Nguyen gives is, is conflicted. And there's certainly evidence to the contrary and they're completely ignoring it. And we live in a world now where that's not acceptable and we have to stand up and we can no longer sit back and do this because this tyranny is going to continue to get worse. They're not gonna back off the government and these organizations will never give up power uh, willingly. They will only take more. And every time we bend over and take it a little bit, they will just take another step forward. This isn't the last booster. This isn't the last virus. This isn't the last lockdown. This isn't the last control. I mean, they're gonna do the same thing with cars. they are gonna with fuel, with uh, mobility. You know, They're gonna make it so that you can't fly. Like in certain countries now, like Canada and Australia, and uh, there are other countries too in in Europe that you can't get on a train. Um, You can't uh, leave the country. You can't uh, fly on a plane, even domestically, um, without a vaccine passport. Of course, a vaccine passport, as we know, based on the current data, doesn't mean anything because you can still spread the virus. You can still catch the virus. So what's the point? And we're using it. We're just and, and now it's become acceptable to just walk into a restaurant here in Southern California and have to show your papers. This isn't Nazi Germany yet. Um, but you don't you saw me, you read, you heard my podcast on the Nuremberg codes and what's happening. We're we're on that slope, and there is no question we're on that slope to show you papers and to have a different subset of, of citizenry and to scapegoat people and to segregate people. Um based on their their medical beliefs or their medical history or their own personal autonomy is can it will never end well so on that note that pleasant note i wish you all well and uh until next time bye bye